0: Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast where we explore important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. Today we talk to Dr Malcolm Mahadevan, Assistant Dean at the Yonglulin School of Medicine and former Head of Department at NUH Emergency. In this podcast episode, we talk about leading the NUH's efforts to set up community isolation facilities for our migrant brothers, how he learned how to deal with the interdisciplinary nature of the work, working with many different agencies. We also talk about how medicine at its core is relational between the doctor and the patient, and what medical students should do in dealing with this new normal in the COVID pandemic. Right now, given that there is a pandemic, could you tell us a bit more about your job in leading and coordinating the NUH's response towards COVID?
1: So over the last decade, I was the head of the emergency medicine department and very recently, on the, I, I, I stood down after a decade of service and uh, I was wondering in, uh, how else I could serve and, and be useful in the medical system. And on the 10th of April, which was actually happened to be my birthday, I actually uh, went to one of the dormitories to actually assist NUHS efforts in in outreach to the workers and I felt um, quite compelled to go in there to to assist in, in any way that I could and actually this um, reflecting back over the last six years actually my wife and I on um, two a fortnight every year we would go in to conduct uh, medical missions with uh, dormitory workers. After a series of uh, English classes that was conducted, we would lead a medical team into the dormitories to do health screening for the workers. And it was, as I reflected over the last six years, it was our privilege and acquaintance with these workers that slowly planted seeds of of friendship and kinship in in my heart. And um, when this pandemic kind of broke and the plight of the workers became apparent, I think I felt a call to actually go in and serve the workers. So on the 10th of April, I went in uh, wanting to look after the medical needs of a very large dormitory. This was uh, Sungai Tengah Lodge, which has about, between twenty four to 25,000 workers inside this dormitory. And because of the outbreak of COVID inside the dormitory, it became a lockdown dormitory, meaning nobody could go in and nobody could go out. It was controlled by our Singapore police force and it was a very tense and uh, difficult situation for the workers. So together with some of my medical colleagues, we went there to actually conduct daily rounds for COVID positive patients. And um, I actually volunteered to do this. And after doing this for a couple of days, it was I was suddenly told by um, my, my superiors in the in NUHS that I have been tasked to set up community isolation facility. And this community isolation facility was to look after 1,700 foreign workers who who were sick with COVID. And this was to be situated in Tuas area. So I suddenly had um, a new job to do. So I set about with a team of people planning and starting to make arrangements for the setting up of this facility. And while I was... Busy planning because the rollout date was very short. It was, you know, it was supposed to be in a week to 10 days to set up this facility. I was then told that this would be a string of three facilities that I needed to lead to set up. So I had to establish this first facility with 1,700 uh, beds, then go on to set up another facility with 1,450 beds followed by a third facility um, of 3,000 uh, 3, beds. So I have been uh, heavily, very heavily involved with looking after the, work, the workers. I'm very excited and um, I'm very happy that we can do this uh, for them. And they, I mean, having spoken to the workers and talked to them, they are very deeply appreciative they are fearful. They have their um, anxieties. Sometimes it's difficult for us to actually understand their mindset because we don't speak some of their languages. There's 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 cultural divide. You know, um, we sometimes misunderstand them. They may misunderstand us. But certainly, like all of us, they have their fears, their anxieties, their expectations, their hopes. And um, I I always remind myself, you know, they are a foreign people in our land. And the Bible teaches us that we must always love and take care of the foreigners in our land. The Bible commands us to do that. So, being a Christian, I believe that this is a direct instruction for me. So, apart from just my convictions as a doctor, it is also my religious conviction that we need to go the extra mile to help and serve these workers. So that is my, in brief, my, what I've been doing and occupying myself uh, in this time. And it is, um, it is a very interesting and um, uh, learning journey. I'm learning a lot about my, myself. I'm learning a, a lot about how to do, do new things and work with lots of different people People from other industries, you know, even with um, people from the from the JTC uh, who construct and build these um, community isolation facilities, to people from Ministry of Health, to to the police, with the people from the SAF, even our our volunteers, you know, a very very important group of people. Now, you know, this COVID situation in. For the foreign workers, we think it's it's largely a medical problem, but it's not a medical problem per se. As we know, you know, a large proportion of the workers will most likely get a mild illness and, and recover. But there would be some, of course, who would go on to progress and actually get very sick. And that's where we have to be vigilant, look after them in the community isolation facilities, pick them up early and, and make sure that they are well. But the medical aspect is, is a small component. The larger and more pressing issue is a social issue. You know, how do we ensure the mental, the psychological, the physical well-being of these workers? When I first entered the, the large dorm, things were very, very tense inside there. The police were aground on, on foot. The military was there. There were security forces, and the workers were all holed up in their dorms. And these were these dorms were um, uh, multi-story buildings. They were eleven-story. It was like a small cluster, maybe like uh, you know one of our small uh, precincts, like um, Haugang or things like that. And all of them were standing out of their windows and along the landings, peering down at us who were were fully garbed in our PPE, and I was looking up at them, and they were looking down at me, and so we we conducted our uh, sick parade to swap them and stuff. So when the workers queued up, you know, I went to one by one, and I said, and I talked to them. I said, brother, how are you? You know, baya, baya is Bengali for brother. How are you? We are here to help you. And I could see through their eyes that because they all wore masks, right? Actually so, only uh, facial expressions through their eyes. You know, they looked at me, and um, you could see their smile be- behind their their mask, and they were they were deeply appreciative. But you could sense that that fear and that worry, you know, in- inside them. Uh, and I said, I tried to reassure them as much as possible, saying that we were doctors and nurses and medical people uh, here in the dorm to to help them. So I, I still felt that we had not reached out to them adequately and we had not bridged that gap, you know, because um, unless we a relationship with our patients, then how, how can, if we don't have that, how can we actually guide them into following the advice that we have for them to get better? So what I did was uh, with the help of, colleague of mine, Mike, he's an uh, ex-chief commando officer, so he's very good at operations and things like that. We sought permission from the police commander on the ground and we got down all the dorm leads. Now, what are dorm leads? Dorm leads are uh, uh, all the floors and all the blocks. They have workers themselves who have shown some form of leadership. They they speak. relatively good english they can understand they are they are put in charge of each cluster or each block and um there are hundred there were more than hundred of them so i said can we bring these guys down and i would like to talk to them so um the the dorm operator with a security went and arranged over a couple of days to get these guys down and we finally managed to get them down there was hundred of them, and we had to we seated them down in a in a car park, and I used a megaphone to to address them and talk to them and uh, try to reassure them and gave them some material, and this material was crafted by Dale Fisher, and Dale Fisher is our infectious disease exp- the COVID tales, so he he was the one who uh, crafted like uh, maybe seven to ten statements, you know, things that were very important for the workers to do at this point. Because remember, 25,000 workers, they are all uh, in close-quartered living. Some of them are COVID positive, some of them may be asymptomatic carriers, but some of them may not have uh, COVID yet. So this uh, set of statements included social distancing, how to do it, hand washing, keeping their area clean, continuing to wear their mask, etc. Because though sounding very simple, these, were very, these are very effective measures to stop the, the you know, widespread transmission of COVID. So I, I, we got this translated into Tamil, into Bengali, into Hindi and Myanmar and Chinese as well. So we gave it out to these dorm leads and I told them, I said, guys, you got to read this. You got to understand this and you need to go back to your dormitories and start teaching all your workers that you are in charge of. And I said, um, and they were very engaged. They understood what I was saying and they said that they would do it. I also asked them how they were feeling you know, whether they were anxious. Initially, they said no, but as we warmed up, I, you know, they actually acknowledged that there were a lot of workers that were were scared and worried back in the bunk. So this was the first, hopefully, of a, a series of engagements, which, uh, like I mentioned early, earlier, I was now plucked out from the dorm, this dorm, to go set up other dorm.
0: I was just wondering, so how does, like, a day go from, like, the morning to the night. How is it?
1: So we need to monitor them. Now remember, this is 1,700 patients. How do we do it? So this is not a hospital, but this is a facility. So we do this by actually using blood pressure machine and a pulse oximeter connected to an iPad, which the workers on a daily basis have to go in, register themselves, take their own blood pressure, Record their own heart rate and pulse oximeter reading into the iPad. And all this information for all the, the patients in the 1,700 patients is then back end processed through a system called a VSM system, Vital Science Monitoring System. They actually use a kind of um, a bot to run through and see who has not been doing their vital science monitoring and it will, a message will be sent to the worker, hey, you have not done your vital sign monitoring for today. Also, to the medical team on site, uh, if their vital signs are abnormal, so for example, we are, we are very worried about silent hypoxemia as the, the, the COVID virus uh, starts causing problems in the lungs. We want to pick this up early, so if the pulse oximeter reading is a bit low, we are so alerted. I have a wonderful team of uh, doctors helping me. Doctors who are public health trained and they have been working with the foreign workers for a while. And they have really worked very hard to uh, make a little health booklet for every worker. And inside this health booklet is the Bengali tongue, or in the Hindi, or in, in Tamil to tell the workers in a Something like the COVID tales, but in a cartoon, drawing form. Hey, don't be afraid. We are here to care for you. This is what will happen in the next two weeks. This is the facility you are in. Where do you seek help? What do you need to do? How do you take care of yourself? What to do if you fall sick? Where, this, um, where can you um, source for help? If you feel anxious or worried, there are some URL links inside there for help, mental health by Surf. So this health booklet is very, very important for the workers so that they are, their minds will be engaged during their stay there. It's like a, maybe an intern, right? You feel interned or you feel imprisoned in, in two weeks. So um, these workers... We want to keep them engaged. We want to keep them uh, occupied. We don't want them to feel sorry for themselves or depressed or, you know, have all kinds of negative thoughts. And hopefully at the end of two weeks, uh, now, remember it's 1,700 workers. We have to bring them down and they mature at different times. So when two weeks are up for the individuals, we bring them down. We actually have to swap them again to make sure, to see whether or not they are now COVID negative and if they are swab negative then we can start um, moving them out of the facility and take in a new set of of patients so every every day for me is doing all these um, planning and and working out all the the intricacies of of this right now at the moment so once the facility is set up then you know we will start having to go in and making make sure that everything is set up correctly and all the workers are safe so that, that's what a typical day is like for me
0: does my mind
1: have a rhythm is my heart
0: So I was thinking if you could go back to um, six years ago when you started volunteering in the dormitories and the English lessons. I think you, you talked a bit about how your religion influenced you to take care of the people who are foreigners in your country. Um, okay. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how you got started with that, with that outreach program.
1: If we are so blessed, if we have so much, then what do we do with it? That, that was the question that was in my mind then do we share or do we just um, keep it all to ourselves? And if you, you, know, you look around, there, there are others who don't have as much. They are lonely. And you know, my family, myself, we have been resident in, in other countries and we know what it is like to be a foreigner. in So first of all, we needed to find out, you know, we, we were there to do something practical, not just go there to feel good about ourselves you know sometimes I think that you know even in my own reflection I always remind myself you know don't don't have this hero complex you need to go and save the whole world that's not the issue the issue is to be to be thoughtful to be mindful to be understanding of who these people are and what their needs are their needs or not so even before we started to just cheong inside the dorm and say, okay, we are here to save you guys. We got all this stuff and knowledge and we can we can do stuff for you. We, we conducted a needs assessment and the needs assessment was, okay, what, what would be helpful to the workers? They, are, they don't speak much English, but they live in an environment where they have to interact with people who speak English every day. So we said, okay, let's go teach them. Then... We said, we don't know whether there were any health needs of these workers. Now, how do we find that out? Um, then we'll say, okay, why don't we go in and conduct screening for them? Like that. And then we would give them some fruits and some vitamins. This we would do for two, uh, a fortnight. And we, we had hundreds of them come. This was the, the kind of relationship that we built up with the workers. And it was a bridge, a bridge for them to meet us and a bridge for us to meet them. Because the, the only other time that we, I would meet foreign workers would be in the emergency department when they had a medical problem, when they were a patient. And they would come and, you know, it would be too brief because most of the time in a busy emergency department, we focus more on their medical problems rather than uh, spending time to understand more about their social circumstances.
0: It seems like you're doing a lot of planning right now. And that's not exactly something which medical school teaches you, like organisational skills. Yes. So, I was just wondering, how do you pick up all these skills? Or...
1: Yeah, so, you know, we always have this funny idea, even I had it in medical school. Oh, you know, medical school is the time that I'm doing all the learning. Once I finish school, I'm done. Yay, I passed my exam, I'm a doctor now, you know. Wow, what a, what a paradigm shift. I realized the learning just begins in medical school, Hmm. you know. And this this word, lifelong learner, is real because you have to continue to learn because things change, right? Thank God the last decade of being a HOD, you know, I had to learn how to organize things in my department and all that. So that was a good springboard for me. But then now things were different. I had to work with different people, Mm -hmm. different agencies You know, and each agency, each organization has their own culture, their own way of thinking, their own paradigms. Like the police were were mainly focused on uh, security, they also were making sure that the hearts and minds of the workers were at ease so that there wouldn't be any civil unrest. The military had its own perspectives, and the medical teams were there with their own ideas. And remember, all of us are trained. Uh, I mean, especially during my time, we are trained to work in a hospital. So that is our area of operations, right? So in a hospital, everything is there for us. The nurses, the operations people, we are in familiar ground. Now suddenly you are plucked out of that situation and put in a dormitory. So I'm like, okay. But my experience before in going into dormitories was very useful. I, I, I... I kind of knew how a dormitory operated. I kind of knew where the workers were. You know, there was some prior knowledge that I could tap on. But then the circumstance was very different now. This was in a lockdown dorm with sick patients inside, etc. And then I had to learn, you know, why we swab patients and how would that be effective in this. We can't swab 25,000 patients. just impossible, right? So we had to try and figure out you know, how we were going to do it, how we were going to prioritise, how we are going to cohort patients who were sick, etc., to prevent things from spreading. So a lot of learning for me.
0: So I, was, I wanted to pick up a bit more on um, like what you said about like not making this a political debate. And um, when you said that, it really reminded me about this interview that Anthony Fauci the. The NCID equivalent
1: hit in the US it about
0: um, his only ideology is science.
1: So, yes, we live, we live uh, our beliefs. We live out our convictions and we are not fearful and we do the right thing because our country needs us to do that. The foreign workers and our patients need us to do that. And it's not about us. And it's not about seeking glory or fame or anything like that. It's just doing the right thing.
0: So I was wondering, how do you deal with the uncertainty and anxiety in like, your own life? Because I'm sure this is a, it's a very new situation, rather unprecedented.
1: I, I would My own personal worldview is I would go back to what I believe in my faith in God who has ordained all these things for a reason and a purpose. And sometimes in our um, um, in our situation, it may not be clear to us, but we believe and we hope. um, And the greatest of all these things is love. So, I truly believe that love will see us through. Loving one another, you know, for me, loving God and following what He has instructed. Uh, This will it will see us through because I do have hope, and how do I rationalize this? I take one day at a time. Um, I'm thankful every morning I wake up and I'm still Mm alive. I I make sure I have a sense of smell. I don't have a temperature. So I'm good to go. So that's how I'm taking it at the moment. I'm actually, you know, I just wanted to share something. I don't know when it will end, but I'm hopeful. And if, you know, it's it's the same situation, right? If we are not part of the solution, we are part of the problem, right? We're just not doing anything. So I decided that I want to be part of the solution. I want to do everything within me to help. And help means doing all these things, doing it properly, doing it to the best of my ability. And that's how I cope with the situation.
0: I wanted to pick up on something which you said about the medicine is a relational thing, mm-hmm. and I was, I was also one in the ED when you have such little time with the patient. How do you build that rapport so quickly?
1: If we if we don't build build up a relationship with the patient, then they're not going to trust us. They're not going to follow what we are going to tell them. the The opportunity for them to get better may be reduced. So it's also a practical consideration. So how do we do it? In I think. It's definitely something that we need to, to learn and to be good at. So we, we need to say, okay, look, like it's not like one time I go there and I'm an expert. It will take, it will take some time before I... So you, you need to understand certain groups of people and how to relate with them first. They are not a digit or they are not, um, you know, they, they are real things. So the ability to do that, it comes in different ways, like, you know, eye contact, body language, even touch. I always try, as far as possible, very appropriately, to touch my patient on the shoulder, you know, or shake their hand, or hold their hand, comfort them, okay? So, those, those things must do, even with the workers, through the, through the mask, the eyes, you know, I'm masked, they are masked. They can barely hear me. Maybe they don't even understand what I'm saying. But the eye contact, looking at them. I can't even touch them, right? Because, you know, mm. I can't be touching all of the, the of them. Um, but just looking through the eyes, you know, and meaning what we say and with, with with sincerity can communicate. They understand. They respond. I was using a loud hailer in a kapak. I looked at them yeah. and... I was sincere when I spoke to them, and I believe that they, they understood. so humans are very, very smart, they're very perceptive. They can tell when people are just there for some for, for their own reasons and their own sakes, and when people are there for a genuine reason. So I think even as a medical student, you know you have started to be part of the comfort and care process, and I know many medical students who are really good at this, they actually do care, they come and tell us, you know that patient is now like this, you know, uh, this is the social circumstance or this is the family situation, which is very, very informative to us and it helps us in our decision making uh, process as well. So medical students are not just there as, as leeches or bugs or whatever terminology, you know, they are actually there truly as part of the team, but it's how we utilize them And you guys are part of us. You are an extension of us. You can, you know, hopefully talk and have a little bit more time to spend with the patient to discover these things. But in the emergency department, if we just think everything is a cut, a wound, a heart attack, then we we have lost the plot. Because people do come back and tell us we really appreciate so-and-so. We really was thankful for that comforting gesture and all that. So that still needs to go on. And you guys need to focus on that and learn how to do that step by step.
0: According to some medical education research, that empathy decreases across the years in medical school. Like it peaks when you start your clinical years and then it just declines after that. Once you start thinking yes, uh, like you need to get the diagnosis, find out what investigations to do.
1: Okay, and I have my own take on that. I, I, um, do you mind if I just, just say mm, something? Sure. I think all of us enter medical school with a lot of altruism because even, you know, every time we, we conduct medical interviews, you know, why do you want to do, become a doctor? Oh, I want to save the world. I, I want to care. You know, it, even I say that. All of us say that. Then we go into the real world. And we see the real things. Now, in every frame of mind, there must be some deconstruction before we construct. Okay, because it's not really... Um, it, it's a good thought, a good idea, we we hold on to it. We don't let it go completely. But now we have to reshape our whole paradigm. Then we realize this is the real world. Okay, guys, we have to move fast. We have to act fast. There's a lot of patients waiting and all these things. So the students like, huh? But I wanted to save the world. I wanted to care for everybody. You know, what happened here? So they get a little bit uh, discouraged. We all go through it. I went through it. But then we reframe. We restructure. We We understand. Yes, Um, there's a lot of complex planning, I have to work with various agencies and all that, but I always remind myself, don't lose focus that there are real workers who work with COVID that need to be attended to. Uh, Being kind to them is vital and utmost. So I think we need to reframe, restrike that balance and, and understand that
0: when you have so many potential COVID-positive patients or COVID-positive patients needing to be housed in very large facilities, it can also feel very cold and distant? You know, making
1: policies and decisions and, and governing is no easy task. It is actually extremely difficult. There's always a translational aspect. So we have to understand what is above us. Then we also has, have to understand what's around us, which is the patient. And and then we need to um, rationalize and re- reconcile both these things. So, for example, you are absolutely right. I have to go about to set up this 1,700 bed facility. I could just expand all my energies, making sure that everything works and everything is ticked tock right? But I would have lost the point, right? Because the whole reason for the facility is for the worker. So, one of the first tasks that I did was, okay, what about these guys? You know Who's going to cater for their their mental, psychological well-being? And that's why one of the first things we did was to work towards this health booklet thing that we wanted to give them. That was the first in many engagement steps. So, we must not lose the forest from the trees, right? I think that's very important. Say,
0: is there anything else you want to add?
1: you are being placed in a difficult situation, then you you start to think properly and, and figure things out and question stuff. But if you're in always a safe and secure environment, you, you don't do that so much. So that that really helped shape who I am and yeah, those experiences were, were precious. Medical education is not a one-way street. The students need to take control and they need to also give us some guidance some suggestions you know a a bubbling up of of ideas that needs to occur you can't you can't have this dichotomy okay the school decides on everything the school has all the the ideas and and the solutions not true not true but covid is going to be long drawn so we need the students to engage with us and tell us and give us some guidance as well so that we can make good decisions together (music)
0: just want to give a shout out to Erica Nyam, composer of our wonderful introductory music. The piece is called Locked In, which was first performed at the Sing Health Humanising Healthcare Concert in December of 2019. If you like this episode and would like to find out more about the podcast, you can follow us at Third Spacing on Instagram. Or check out our website, thirdspacingpodcast.wordpress.com.